0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson, and I still have a cold.
1: Aww. Oh, so one day it will go away, we hope. Uh, so we are on to part two of our two parter on Bella Lugosi. So in the first part, we talked about sort of his origins in Hungary, some of the crazy adventures he went on as a kid, uh, how he kind of rose up into the the ranks of acting in the national theater, did a little bit of military service, uh, eventually came to the United States and was basically chosen to play the part of Dracula on stage when the first choice actor wanted too much money. So that's kind of where he kind of makes his name for himself uh, and becomes a, a bigger name associated with this hit play that critics weren't too wild about, but audiences just fell in love with. So when we left off, Universal had kind of taken note of how popular this play was, and they were starting to sniff around and be interested in possibly adapting it. Uh, and that's where we're actually going to pick up now. And this turned out to be a little bit tricky for the the movie studio, because getting the movie rights squared away for Bram Stoker's novel uh, took some wheeling and dealing in a lot of sort of fancy footwork on the part of the Universal legal team. So Bram Stoker's widow, Mrs. Stoker, had made numerous rights deals on her husband's work. And some of those had conflicting agreements. This meant that some parties owned portions or right portions of rights to the works. Uh, and they they weren't all going to easily be dealt with just with one deal directly with her. So Universal's lawyers eventually had to make deals with four different parties just to get the rights to make the film.
0: While all these legalities were still being worked out, Lugosi had continued to star in the play as it wrapped up its run on Broadway, and then it started to tour. He desperately wanted to star in the film, but he wasn't Universal's first choice. The film company even telegrammed Lugosi's agent to make it perfectly clear that they were going to hire someone else.
1: Yeah, Universal was not interested in hiring him. They really had their sights set on Lon Chaney. Uh, and this is Lon Chaney Sr., in case there's any confusion. Uh, Chaney had already made quite a name for himself in films like The Phantom of the Opera and The Unknown. And in an effort to attract Chaney to the role, Universal hired Todd Browning to direct Dracula. And he had directed Chaney uh, in his, his turn in The Unknown. And they thought that that pairing might make it really appealing to Chaney to come back and work with Browning again.
0: So when Lugosi got this telegram, he was really undeterred. He continued to sell himself to Universal and suggested that to have him continue in the role would draw an audience since he was now really associated with the main character. He also made it his personal mission to be helpful in the negotiations with Florence Stoker as a way to kind of ingratiate himself to the film studio. He even offered to dub the Hungarian version of the film for free.
1: Yeah, Universal, for its part, was not super enthused with all this behavior. They really perceived this more as like wheedling and begging uh and a bit irritating rather than being helpful. And uh in the end, however, much as with the stage version, Lugosi won the role by simply being willing to take it when no one else would. Uh After all of the other lead actor choices that Universal had in mind turned the part down, and with the filming start date looming, they had already scheduled out filming and arranged crews and sets were built. Universal finally offered it to Legosi for the paltry sum of $500 a week. Uh, they eventually totaled out his payments at $3,500. And this sounds like maybe not such a bad deal. Uh, I've seen it sort of uh, adjusted to today's dollars as being about somewhere in the the range of $45,000, $47,000 for this seven-week run, which if you're just a person, person, that sounds like a, a pretty good sum of money for seven weeks of work. But for an actor uh, at the time, even, it really wasn't that great a deal. Uh, this was about a quarter of what a lead actor with name recognition could get for a role. And even though he wasn't that huge in film at this point, he did have a film career and he really was widely recognized as Dracula for the stage production. Moreover, this was lower paid than several of the supporting actors received for Dracula.
0: During the filming, Bella Lugosi had some pretty serious back pain, but the production had to stay on schedule, so he was prescribed some pretty heavy-hitting ba- uh, painkillers to get through it. Unfortunately, this would contribute to a lifelong struggle with addiction.
1: Uh, and there's a fun aside to the Dracula filming story that doesn't have to do with Bella Lugosi, but I wanted to include it because it's so sort of fascinating. There was actually a second version of Dracula that was being made at the exact same time as the Browning directed version. So at night, you know, the principal uh, photography and the primary crew would go home for the day. And a second film crew and a slate of actors that were led by Carlos Velarias would use those exact same sets and lighting setups to film the Spanish language version of Dracula. Uh Universal did this to make the best use of their assets and reach a broader international audience. And it was actually easier to stage an entire second film than it would have been to dub the original. And that gets into a whole fun sort of movie criticism thing. There are people that will say that they actually think the Spanish language version is better and sort of more dramatic and dynamically staged than uh the the English version. But that's a discussion for another day. But it's just a fun side note to the whole Dracula
0: story. The film version of Dracula debuted on screens on February 13th, which was a Friday, of course, in 1931. As with the stage version, critical reception was mixed, or maybe lukewarm at best, but audiences loved it. Universal had a hit on its hands.
1: And... And as another sort of uh side notey thing, some people will attribute the brevity of the spoken language in the film, it's not a very talky film, uh to the fact that Lugosi was still not fully fluent in English. And while that that may have played a part, it's also important to consider that this was the early days of talkies still. Uh a lot of theaters simply were not equipped for sound, and Universal really wanted to hedge their bets for optimal distribution. I mean, they were At this point, it was not so much about art, just as many films today are not artistically great, but they make a lot of money. They wanted to sort of be able to distribute as widely as they could. So instead, the film really focuses a great deal on atmosphere and lighting and framing to convey the tale rather than long discussions and sections of dialogue.
0: In spite of the fact that he had really actively campaigned for the role, I mean, he had pushed hard for it. He was already kind of tired of it before the film even hit the screen. During filming, he complained about typecasting, the stigma, the poor pay that came with playing the Count. He was offered a contract to start in another stage production of Dracula during the shoot. And he responded that he would not redo the role on stage anymore for any price. In a quote that becomes really sad when looking back on it now, he said, quote, When I'm through with this picture, I hope never to hear of Dracula again. I cannot stand it. I do not intend that it shall possess me.
1: That's sort of sad and depressing.
0: Uh, but
1: before we get to kind of his life after Dracula, do you want to take a word from a sponsor? Sure. So to get back to Bella, uh, Todd Browning's adaptation of Bram Stoker's story was so successful that it really helped birth the universal horror legacy. And the studio was so delighted with the picture's triumph that, uh, it was happy to offer another role to Lugosi. And that next one, and there's a whole little story around this, was, uh, the role of Frankenstein's monster. Initially, according to, uh, most accounts, he was actually originally going to be considered for the role of Dr. Frankenstein, but then because this was so popular and some studio executives thought like th- his name might really keep that next picture going and, and making the same kind of box office that they were making with Dracula, they were like, no, no, make him the monster. Uh, he was worried that all of the makeup and the prosthetics involved in playing Frankenstein's monster were actually going to obscure his face to the point that no one would recognize him.
0: Of course, Boris Karloff ended up starring in Frankenstein, and he went on to great success. Lugosi, on the other hand, never quite got over this fact and stayed bitter about how the things played out between them for years. Yeah,
1: that's one of those stories people like to really play up the uh, that Lugosi really hated Karloff, and th- th- uh, that's not entirely supported. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But Lugosi did, despite having turned down Frankenstein, uh, continue to get work, of course. But despite his great fame as the stylish and iconic vampire... He still never really commanded huge salaries, uh, and it's unclear if his agent was just really bad or if he was just willing to take anything. Uh, he starred in White Zombie the year after Dracula premiered, and this earned him only a little more cash than he had earned while playing Count Dracula, which we had already mentioned was a quarter of what most, you know, well-known name recognition actors would be making for a film of that nature. Uh, he started in dozens of films in his career. If you look at his Internet Movie Database profile, he has 117 acting credits, but he never again achieved the acclaim that he gained as Count Dracula, and he never really was able to kind of convert that to making serious money.
0: As the 1930s drew to a close, horror was kind of having a downturn in popularity. And the roles that Lugosi had access to really dried up for a while. But in the 1940s, it started to pick up again, although there was often kind of a campy vibe in the the roles that, that he was being tapped to play. A lot of the films that Lugosi worked on during this time were either sequels or spoofs, and this was the era when Frankenstein meets The Wolfman happened, as well as Abbott and Costello crossovers with famous horror monsters.
1: Yeah, it got a little cheekier and a little less about, like, horror and drama and... Uh... I also feel like we should point out that, uh, Todd Browning, who directed Dracula, his career did not go so well after that movie either. He, his next big film was Freaks, which pretty much tanked his career. Uh, I love Freaks, not everybody does, but, uh, back to Bella, as his career wore on, he just was taking worse and worse parts, sometimes in total bombs, just for the paycheck. Uh, and he also took stage roles, playing Dracula, as he said he would never ever do, and at one point uh, in one of these productions, he found himself stranded in the United Kingdom when a touring production of Dracula that he was starring in just went bankrupt and bankrupt and completely ended abruptly while they were mid-tour. And so he was just stuck there. He didn't have a way to get home. He didn't really have the money uh, to to book a ticket home. And so he ended up having to take a part in another really crappy movie just to make enough money to get home. That movie eventually was released as My Son the Vampire.
0: Lugosi married his fourth wife, Lillian Arch, in 1933. And this was his longest lasting marriage and the only one that resulted in a child. Lillian and Bella welcomed Bella George Lugosi into their lives on January 5th, 1938. Bella and Lillian were married for 20 years before they separated in 1953.
1: Yeah, and even after their separation, she really remained part of his life because of their child together. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But uh, So throughout his career post-Dracula, we mentioned uh, the prescription painkillers. But Lugosi was battling his, adip- his addiction to prescription narcotics. And it was finally at the age of 72 that he went to the Los Angeles County authorities for help. Uh, he told them he was addicted to narcotics and that he needed assistance. And he checked himself into the Metropolitan State Hospital for addiction treatment and rehabilitation. And this program lasted three months. Uh, and in an interview that was given the day before he checked out, and this video is online, we'll link to it in our show notes, uh Bella really appeared very upbeat, uh you know that same sort of uh wonderfully charming, very um composed, just he had like such a great air about him, and he talked about how he was a new man, he was ready to get back to work, he was talking about the work he was gonna do with uh Eddie Wood, and we'll talk about their relationship in just a moment, but it, he really you sort of see like that he was this amazing charming, very erudite man. Uh, And the interviewer even says, like, it's so good to see him looking so well and being so much himself again.
0: And in spite of that, uh, Hollywood didn't really welcome him back with open arms. If he had gone into rehab today, that would have been nothing more than a news report. And the industry and the public probably would have even, you know, rallied behind the newly healthy Bella once he was out of rehab But in the 50s, the stigma of his addiction really meant that no one wanted to work with him.
1: Yeah, it was not the same as it is now. Uh, And this brings us to marriage number five. So uh, while he was in the hospital, that was in 1955. So it was just a couple years after he had divorced Lillian that he went through rehab. He received this steady stream of letters, like daily letters from a fan by the name of Hope Leninger. And Leninger was a clerk at RKO, and she had, according to Lugosi's wife Lillian, been writing to Bella Lugosi for years. She would always sign off with the phrase, a dash of hope. Uh, but once he was in rehab, she really just sort of made it her mission to constantly write him and keep this steady, steady stream of, of missives going to him.
0: Shortly after he got out of rehab, Lugosi actually met with her, and... Ever impetuous when it came to love, it wasn't long before he proposed to her. And she was, at that point, roughly 40 years younger than her now fiance.
1: Yeah, he liked younger women. There was also, uh, she apparently lied about her age on the day of the wedding to make the gap seem not quite so wide. Uh, but only by a few years. And when you're talking about 40 years, I don't know that it makes that big of a difference. Um, but perhaps realizing that he had been rash in entering into this engagement, uh, by all accounts, Bella drank pretty heavily on his fifth wedding day. Uh, according to Lillian Arch, he called her, that's again his fourth wife, and said that he would rather be marrying her again. He even suggested that they try to give marriage a second shot. She, recognizing that he was not sober, uh was not really willing to entertain this kind of talk. Uh, and she turned him down and then he invited her to the wedding. So it sounds like a little bit of a wacky phone call. Uh, Lillian refused to attend the wedding. Uh, and though his 17-year-old son, Bella George, served as his best man, both the son and uh, Lillian
0: were a little distrustful of this match, and more specifically of Hope. But, you know, in spite of all the family disapproval, which at this point was a recurring theme in Bella's life, Bella and Hope got married on August twenty-fourth, 1955, this was just 19 days after he checked out of rehab. Yeah, there's part of
1: me that kind of loves a little, um, you know, impetuous love story, but he was kind of a serial impetuous love story that they didn't seem to work out so well. So, uh, before we go, uh, and talk about his relationship with Ed Wood and Plan Nine, uh, let's have a word from a sponsor. And now we will conclude our two-parter on Bella Lugosi. We talked about how his career really had had kind of gone downhill and then rehab really uh played a part in making him kind of an untouchable in Hollywood. Uh No one was willing to work with him. But really, if it weren't for his tanking career and his later pariah status, filmmaker Ed Wood may never have gotten to work with him. So the now famous schlock director, who Lugosi called Eddie, uh befriended Lugosi when he was really living in obscurity, and they worked on uh, a number of B-grade projects or lower, depending on your tastes, together. And in the last several years of Lugosi's life, the pair
0: became very good friends. So, uh, if you've seen Ed Wood, the movie, you might think that Plan 9 from Outer Space was really a fun film, and it is if you like truly terrible films, or maybe riff tracks. (laughs) It has kind of a charm about it, but you really could never consider it a good movie. Uh, You may also think, if you are familiar with the movie Ed Wood, that Bela Lugosi slept in a coffin and was really quite a card. And while... The Tim uh, Burton biopic is to many people delightful. Pretty much everyone who knew Bella is really adamant that while Martin Landau's performance of him in the movie *Edwood* Wood was fantastic, he did win the Best Supporting Actor Oscar for it. It was not anything like Lugosi in real life. Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff did not hate each other, although there was some rivalry between the two of them when they were being considered the same parts. So... Well, like I can speak for Holly here. Holly's a huge <laughs> fan of the movie *Edwood*. I love it. Yes, it took many, many, many liberties with the story that we are about to tell you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I just wanted to make sure that's clear because for a lot of people, when they hear about Bella Lugosi and his addiction uh, and his later life, they're like, "Oh yeah, I saw *Edwood*," and it's like ah, the, the, that movie is so fun, but that's not what you should be using as biographical reference. <laughs> Oh, again, I love the film, but... uh So there was one incident adding to the Karloff stuff. Uh Late in Lugosi's life, this was in August of 1856, so quite late in his life, he apparently awoke in the middle of the night. He had passed out after he consumed a good bit of alcohol. Uh I think some accounts say that it was a combo of scotch and beer. And he told his wife, Hope, that Boris Karloff had come to the house and was waiting in the living room. And in some versions of this story, it makes it sound like he almost thinks Karloff is is almost supernatural or menacing in some way. But this is one of those odd tales, uh, and there are a few others along the way that sort of foster this this story of Lugosi being hateful of and fearful of and obsessed with Boris Karloff. But really, that's just kind of one of those urban folk tales that gets fed by much more benign stories along the way. So not really accurate at all.
0: Not long after this dream about Boris Karloff, on August sixteenth, 1956, Bela Lugosi died of heart failure in his sleep.
1: Uh, yeah, he was discovered by his wife, Hope. Uh, he, you know, by all accounts, it seemed like he went quite peacefully. Uh, and What's interesting is that even though he spent many years of his life trying to get out from under the shadow of Dracula, he was buried in full Dracula costume, uh, including freshly dyed black hair and eyebrows. Uh, if you are especially... Uh, morbid in your fascinations, you can Google that. There are images of him in the coffin online. Uh, But by the time he died, Lugosi had played Dracula more than 1,300 times when you count all of his stage and film appearances.
0: A cape similar to the one he was buried in was found hanging in the deceased actor's closet. And this sparked some rumors that he had actually somehow cheated death and risen from the grave. But, of course, there were multiple copies of this cape, and having one in the closet was not indicative of a supernatural event.
1: Yeah, I think that was a wishful thinking on someone's part. Uh, (laughs) But that is another story that you'll sometimes hear, like, oh, the cape he was buried in was later found in the closet of his home. It's like, no, it was one of many that he had. Uh, And there's actually some debate about the full costume burial being Bella Lugosi's wish or someone else's, you'll often see it referenced as, on according, ironically, according to his own wishes. He was buried in the full Dracula costume. But uh, I want to touch on this a little bit because while his son, Bella George, has said publicly that he and his mother, Lillian, made the final decision to do so, uh, to put him in the costume, they also do believe it was Bella's wish. Uh, no one ever, I don't think, actually has said that, you know, this this was certainly not written down anywhere. It was not anything that he had made arrangements for prior to his death. Uh Allegedly, his wife Hope also told the coroner that he should be buried in his Dracula costume. So it's a little unclear whose wish it actually was. Uh But when you see that it was Bela Lugosi's final wish, you may want to take that with a grain of salt and consider that there were many hands in that particular decision.
0: He was and still is buried at Holy Cross Cemetery, Culver City, California. And while his career was really struggling at the end, his funeral was actually big news. Newspapers came to cover it. There was a dirge, a Hungarian dirge played on the violin. More than 100 industry mourners showed up. And while urban legends have sprung up saying that Frank Sinatra paid for the funeral, that's actually not true. Lillian paid for the plot and The Gravestone and Hope received the $738.12 bill from the funeral home. She paid $521.50 of it, which was all that she could afford, and she thought that Lillian was going to cover the rest. Hope wound up being sued for the remainder and was forced to pay it.
1: Yeah. The two women kind of, uh, did not agree on who was going to cover those expenses. Uh, like I said, even after their divorce, Lillian was very much a part of his life and even right up through his death, she was responsible for some aspects of taking care of business. Um, and after Lugosi's death, of course, Ed Wood famously pieced together footage that he had shot of the actor into what was sort of a brief appearance in Plan 9 from Outer Space. And if you've seen that movie, you could see where those are just completely weird pieces of film that are edited in. Uh But to flesh out this story and fill in the gaps... Wood famously, this is another thing that is famously known and it is indeed true. He hired a chiropractor named Tom Mason as a Lugosi double. Uh, again, that movie's deliciously terrible. I love it, but it's, it often makes like the worst movies ever made list. Uh, and a lot of fans were very upset when it came out that it, it was kind of billed as Bella Lugosi's last film and it really wasn't a great representation of him and he really wasn't in it that much.
0: While his life ends on a kind of a tragic note, we can wrap up by pointing out that even though he was worn very frail by years of addiction and a really struggling career, Bella stayed a showman at heart for pretty much his whole life. In an interview with entertainment journalist uh, Eric Nuzum, the famed sci-fi figure Forey Ackerman described helping Lugosi meet the press in the days leading up to his death. And he said... I was with him two weeks before he died at the premiere of his final film, The Black Sheep. We sat together up in the balcony, and afterward, we were coming downstairs. I could see that they were set up with a big TV camera to interview him. He was very vain and wouldn't be seen in public wearing glasses. So everything down there in the lobby was just a big blur to him. So we got to the bottom of the stairs, and I said, Bella, they want to interview you. And he said, just point me in the right direction. I said, take about six steps forward and you'll be there. He straightened up and filled out and all of a sudden became the tall, proud figure of Count Dracula. I love
1: that story. I love it so much. Uh, yeah, Forrest Ackerman, often referred to as Forey, kind of a, a really famous figure if you're into sci-fi and horror, uh, a renowned collector and sort of historian of those, uh, films of that era. And he befriended Lugosi late in his life. And it's just such a beautiful memory for him to share that, you know, here was this man who kind of fought the Dracula image, but man, when people wanted it, he could just turn it on and delight crowds. So, I love it. That's our Bella Lugosi episodes. I get all wistful because I really love him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, so now I have much less Halloweeny and non-Bella Lugosi related stuff listener mail about our episode about spam we've gotten so many great listener mails and tracy picked that episode so she gets all of the kudos for that one uh this particular one comes from our listener angelo who says thanks for the great lighthearted episode on spam and how it influenced cuisine all over the world i was born and spent my early childhood in the philippines and your take on spam's popularity over there is spot on I had to laugh when you mentioned that Spam can be sold in airport duty free shops to people traveling to the Philippines. I remember having my share of heavy luggage on my last visit to the Philippines because my parents in Canada have wanted me to bring back at least a can of Spam to each one of my family members back in the Philippines. I would always joke that whenever a Filipino in another country would go back to visit the Philippines, he inadvertently becomes a Spam smuggler. I would also like to add that another version of Spam is just as popular in the Philippines, which is canned corned beef. When I was growing up, it was seen as a bit of a luxury item that seems to have become more and more of a staple. It's now so popular that Filipino movie stars, pop singers, and even professional athletes are hired to endorse corned beef in TV ads and on billboards. Uh, keep up the great work, and I hope that you have many more history of different food episodes on in the future. Me too. I love talking about food. Thank you, Angelo. Uh, we got a lot of really good spam email and I'm sure we will share more yeah. of those
0: with you. We will definitely read more later. And I will go <laughs> ahead and say that we've had a couple of people write and point out that Waikiki is not an Island. It is a neighborhood of Honolulu. And that is entirely my fault. And not only is it my fault, it is something where when I was doing the final read through of the outline, I said, I need to look up if Waikiki is actually an Island. And then I did not do it.
1: Well, you know, here's the good news. I, I know that, but I didn't catch it in our review or during record, so it's everybody's fault. <laughs> and it's not that big a deal. We hope we didn't offend anyone in Hawaii. Uh, we're more than happy to come and do research, as I suggested. <laughs> if you would like to write to us to tell us what sort of spam you love or if you love Bela Lugosi or anything else, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at com. You can connect with us at facebook.com slash missed in history, on twitter at missed in history, and missed in history dot com, and on pinterest.com slash missed in history. I cannot wait to pin a bunch of Bella Lugosi images. Uh, you can also visit our Spreadshirt store at missed com, where you can purchase missed in history merchandise, like shirts and bags and mugs and all kinds of cool things, phone cases, I love those. Uh, and if you would like to do a little bit of research on what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works, type in Bella Lugosi's name in the search bar, and you will churn up an episode called Ten Stars Who Died During the Filming of a Movie. Uh he is one of them because of the Plan Nine thing, even though they were working on many projects, Plan Nine uh where that was in production is a little hazy, but uh Bella shows up in that article. If you would like to visit us at our website, which is mistinhistory.com, we encourage you to do so. You'll find show notes. All of our episodes are there. The occasional delightful blog post pretty much from Tracy because she rocks on that stuff. Uh, And if you want to research almost anything you can think of, you can do that at our parent site, which is HowStuffWorks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.